If you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, turn on your phone or device. Acts chapter 17. But having said that, I saw this story online this morning. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We're not going to spend our time on that this morning, though we're going to see a persecuted church in Acts chapter 17. But listen to this just for a moment. In the early morning light, a small group of North Korean believers meets on the riverbank, lugging their fishing gear with them. Quietly, they load into a small boat and push off from land. It's not until they're in the middle of the river that they dare to dig through their gear and pull out their Bibles. This is the only place where they feel safe enough to worship together and study God's Word. And even then, they are constantly on alert. If they are caught reading the Bible, they could immediately be sentenced to 15 years in a labor camp or worse. They've heard the stories of what happens to people who are heard speaking the name of Jesus. Many of them have family members and friends who are living in the camps now or have been buried there. That's why when another boat approaches, they panic and scramble to hide their Bibles. It's the police, someone shouts. Only after the man in the boat greets them in the name of Jesus and tells them that he has a gift for them do they start to calm down. He asks to see their Bibles, and the believers who own one hand them to him. There are only a few Bibles among the church members, not nearly enough for everyone, and each copy is practically falling apart. After years of being carried, after years of being carefully studied and then hidden over and over again, the bindings have come loose and pages are beginning to slip out. Many of the Bibles have water damage from these early morning meetings on the boat, but they are all still these Christians' prized possessions. They risk their lives for these Bibles. This article goes on. It's, um, it's a group who are getting Bibles to the underground church in North Korea. And it just highlighted to me as I read it this morning what an absolute privilege you and I have to so easily hold a Bible in our hand, to so easily read and study God's Word. And if you're new to Redeemer Community Church, we love the Word of God here. We believe it is God's Word. We believe it's true. We believe it's for us. And so we encourage you week in and week out, as you come to Redeemer Community Church, bring your Bible with you. Bring your Bible with you, because we love to turn to it and study it. Acts chapter 17. Frank, can you put the next slide up there, or my slides up? Thank you very much. We're in Paul's second missionary journey. If you were here last week, last couple of weeks, you know that. Let me just show you real quick where we are. If I can get this thing to work, I can't. Go ahead to the next several. Started in Antioch, went to Derby. Go ahead, Frank. To Lystra. Keep it going. Keep going. Keep it going. I'll tell you when to stop. They wanted to go further west. God said no. Turned north. God said no. Came to Troas. That's where they received the Macedonian call. That's good right there, Frank. Come over here and help us. And so they went over. To Philippi. This is Macedonia. They received a call. Come over here and help us. And so for, that's good. 
from Troas, they came to Philippi. And we looked at that last week, the planting of the church at Philippi, where they led Lydia to faith in Jesus, the slave girl to faith in Jesus, the Philippian jailer to faith in Jesus. This week, they move on from Philippi to Thessalonica. You can go back one, Frank, to Thessalonica. There you go. This is what we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter 17. You remember several weeks ago, we remembered Hurricane Harvey and the families in our church that were affected by it. We brought them up on stage and got to hear from many of them. And as they were sharing, the passage that came to my mind was 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm hoping we have time at the end this morning because I want to turn you to it again. 1 Thessalonians chapters 2 and 3, and really the entire book, Paul writing to this church we're about to look at as they were going through some hard stuff. I want to show you this church that got planted, and as I see it this morning, we're going to see the lamb, the lion, and his lion-hearted people. Let's watch it. Verse 1. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And so about 75 miles west of Philippi, they come to Thessalonica. And this is the leading city of Macedonia. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, who I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. The idea of Jesus is the Lamb of God who suffered for his people, I'm getting from that little phrase in verse 3, the Christ had to suffer. Of course, this Jewish audience, that was the hang-up they had with this idea of Jesus being their Messiah. Their expectation was that when Messiah came, he was going to defeat their enemies, Israel's enemies, establish his kingdom, and rule. And yet the Christians were saying, no, the Messiah came and suffered upon a cross. That was, in the words of the Apostle Paul, a stumbling block to them. But here was Paul going to the Jewish audience, going to the synagogue, and reasoning with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to, the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Jesus with his disciples in Luke chapter 9, said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that whenever Jesus, with his disciples, would talk about his suffering to come, they they couldn't understand it. It wasn't their expectation either. Peter said, It'll never happen to you, Lord. After it did happen, Jesus was crucified, suffered, died. In Luke chapter 24, there were some disciples who left Jerusalem, headed to Emmaus. 
going back to their old way of life. They had thought that Jesus was the one. They'd put their hopes in Him. And yet, just hours earlier, crucified, dead and buried. You know the story, Jesus appeared to them. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And a bit later he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. The early Christians obviously picked up on this. And what they had learned from Jesus as he took them back into Moses and into the law and into the prophets and said, see, there it is. And surely Paul is doing the same here in this Jewish synagogue. They would have never expected that Messiah would suffer. And yet Paul probably took them into their Old Testament scriptures much like Jesus had done and said, look, here it is, and here it is, and here it is. Maybe he took them as early as Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered in and Adam and Eve, knowing their guilt, took some fig leaves and tried to cover up. And God comes and says, no, and covers them with an animal skin. The text doesn't tell us, but where did the animal skin come from? The implication is that God, in the very presence of Adam and Eve, took an animal and killed it, and took the skins of that animal and covered them. Maybe he went to Exodus, where the people of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. God was going to deliver his people and he would bring a plague upon Egypt and Pharaoh would say, no, I'm not going to let the people go. And another plague and Pharaoh would say, no, I'm not going to let the people go. Plague after plague after plague until the tenth. And God told the people of Israel, take a lamb unblemished and spotless. Take that lamb and slaughter it. Take the blood of the lamb and put it over your door. I'm going to come through in judgment. And if I see the blood of the lamb over your door, I will pass over you. Or maybe he went into Leviticus. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Those chapters on sacrifice. How does a sinful people have fellowship with a holy God? Answer, sacrifice. Someone dies in your place and for your sins. Maybe he shot ahead all the way to Isaiah 52 and 53, that great passage of Scripture. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
This is 700 years before Jesus Christ was ever born in Bethlehem. He, this servant of the Lord, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we'd look upon him, nor appearance that we would be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we, are, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Maybe it was texts like those and more. But Paul said, oh no, it's there. The Christ, the Messiah, was to come and suffer and then rise again. Maybe his resurrection, he went to places like Psalm 2 or Psalm 16 or Psalm 110 or Psalm 118. He said, this Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you. Peter or Paul had gone into the synagogue and taking them through the Old Testament, showing them where Messiah indeed was to suffer. But then he was proclaiming to them Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation to the Father's right hand. His giving of his spirit to his people in his return one day. Paul is saying, this Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you is that one predicted and prophesied in the Scriptures. And some of them believed. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. It's a reminder, I think, for you and me in a text like this that we worship and follow a suffering lamb. And that the message we proclaim is about one who suffered and died in our place and for our sins. Ours is a message about the love of God, but not a vague message about the love of God. It's very specific. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And in that little phrase, he gave his only begotten son is wrapped up in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is our message. 
of the one who gave his body and gave his blood. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And your hope is that God is love. Indeed, he is. And his love was so expressed towards sinners like you and like me that he sent his son Jesus Christ to be a savior for you and for me. And that work of salvation was him going to a cross for us. That's why we sing of it. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. W. A. Criswell, you old timers will remember his name. Youngsters, maybe not. He was the longtime pastor at First Baptist Church of Dallas. And I think it was on the occasion of his birthday or maybe one of his anniversaries, they asked him what he wanted as a gift. And he said, I want to preach all night. And they said, okay, and they led him. And maybe thankfully for them, he didn't go all night, but he went from 7.30 p.m. until midnight, four and a half hours, if I understand it right, straight. And the people sat there, all right? Justin's all in. Anybody else in? Anybody else in for four and a half hours? His message was, he called it the scarlet thread. And it was a journey from Genesis all the way to Revelation and this scarlet, red thread that runs through it all. The anticipation of a suffering Savior. The fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the looking forward to the salvation of God's blood-bought Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, the Scriptures say. This is who we are. We're people of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But He's not just the Lamb. He's also the Lion. In verse 5, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking some wicked men from the marketplace, some translate it the rabble, one commentator said, these are the lowlifes. This is just the rabble, the lowlifes, the guys just hanging around. These Jews stir these guys up, form a mob, and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. So here's a theme. We see it over and over again in the gospel, or in the book of Acts, right? People believe, and hardship, persecution comes. So they go to Jason's house. Jason apparently is one of these new believers. And they suspect that maybe they've heard that this is where the believers are gathering is at Jason's house. They suspect that Paul is going to be there. Verse 6, when they did not find them, 
They began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the whole world have come here also. And Jason, Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So we get the lamb from that word suffer in verse 3. We get the lion from the word king in verse 7. If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, Jesus is referred to as the lion from the tribe of Judah. There were 12 tribes within the nation of Israel. One of them was the tribe of Judah. And there was an ancient prophecy from Genesis chapter 49 that one of the descendants of Judah would be the king. And he would be the lion. The strong and powerful and authoritative king. Later on, that prophecy would be given with greater detail in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David that one of his descendants would sit upon the throne of Israel forever. And in Luke... When Jesus was born, it was said of him that here is the one who fulfills those ancient promises. And the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, calls him the lion from the tribe of Judah, the one who comes to reign as king. These men who have upset the world have come here also. These guys are stirring things up. And certainly they had, maybe on their first missionary journey, maybe word was getting out around the empire. And surely they had heard what had happened in Philippi, and, but probably they're exaggerating things. The gospel has not yet reached Athens. It hasn't gone to Corinth. It, at least through Paul, hasn't reached Rome and beyond. But maybe what God was doing through His people was beginning to get out, and these guys are saying they've come here also. They're stirring things up. They're on the verge of sedition, inciting discontent and rebellion against the government. Certainly, that's what they had in mind. In verse 7, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. These Christians, these people of the Lamb, were also a people of the Lion. Apparently, they were claiming that Jesus was their king. And that they were waiting for his return. We know that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul says that word about the Thessalonians had already gotten out throughout Macedonia and throughout Achaia that they were turning away from their idols to trust God and they were waiting for the return of Jesus. And in 2 Thessalonians, depending on how we interpret it, the message may have been that this current government is going to fall and the new king is going to arrive. That's what these guys are saying. 
that there's a new king, that he's going to come back. He's going to do away with the current order. We believe that, don't we? The one who came from heaven and lived and died and rose and was exalted to the Father's right hand is coming back one day. Indeed, Jesus is our King. The one who came and suffered is the one who rose again. The one who rose again has ascended to his Father's right hand in heaven, exalted to his Father's right hand. And he has assumed a throne there. And he reigns, he rules in an already but not yet fashion. He is our King who reigns from heaven today who one day will return and fulfill all of the expectations of the government resting upon His shoulders forevermore. A day of righteousness, a day of justice forevermore. I say to you and to me, do you live as if Jesus is indeed your king. I suspect that most of us in the room love to claim that Jesus is the forgiver of my sins. Can I hear an amen? Is he also the leader of your life? He's not just the lamb who suffered. He's the lion who reigns. He's not merely the forgiver of our sins. He's the one who leads us into a new kind of life. I suspect that most of us would glory in Jesus as our rescuer. In that same text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he rescues us from the wrath to come. Is he also your ruler? See the ruler of your life. See the leader of your life. The way it's usually put, most all of us would glory that Jesus is my Savior. Do you also glory in Him as your Lord? And let's not mistake ourselves. He's, it's not that He can be one and not the other, He's Jesus. He's the lamb who gave his life. He's the lion who rose and reigns. Do we live as if he is? If indeed he's not only the forgiver of my sins, but the leader of my life, not only the one who rescues me, but the one who rules me, not only my Savior, but my Lord, that gets down into the nitty-gritty of the life you and I live each and every day, does it not? The lordship of Christ, the kingship of Christ affects every area of our lives. 
things that we think about, the things that we cherish, the way that we spend our time, the way that we steward our money, the way we treat our wives, the way we respond to our husbands, the way we deal with our children, the life we live in the workplace and in the neighborhood and everywhere we go. Jesus is not only my Savior, he's my Lord, not just my rescuer, but my ruler, not just the forgiver of my sins, but the leader of my life. He's the lamb. He's the lion. Well, to believe that, to live like that, may get us in trouble. It's not always the popular thing to follow Jesus. Maybe increasingly so in our culture. It's not that acceptable. Here it certainly got hot. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Probably what happened was that Jason and these other believers were hauled in, dragged in, and accusations were made against them. Paul and Silas couldn't be found. What we think happened is that Jason was put in a difficult position. And he made a pledge or a bond What the scholars think is going on here is that he put up some money as a promise that Paul and Silas wouldn't return. And maybe it had the idea of if they didn't return, you'll get some of your money back, and if if longer, you'll get more, and, and, and if they don't return eventually, all that you have pledged can be returned. Jason's decision is an interesting one. Most of the commentators just explain it and then just leave it alone. Was it a wise move to guarantee the peace? Yeah, we'll get Paul out of town and and, and he can't return and, and we get to go free. Was it a decision that Paul thought was a good one? Luke doesn't comment for us. Was it a compromise that went too far? What we've seen throughout the book of Acts is whenever persecution hits, Christians stand tall. You can't preach in that name anymore. Hey, listen, you be the judge. We got to keep preaching. Was this Jason cowering, saying, I don't want to go to prison? We're not sure. What we do know is in verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. And we know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that Paul from Athens wanted to get back to the Thessalonians, but he couldn't. He tried again and again and said, but Satan thwarted us. We're not sure what he means when he said, yet Satan thwarted us. Some like to attach it to this pledge that Jason made, hey, we'll make sure that Paul and Silas stay out of town. Not sure. One thing we know, and we just have a few minutes left, is that these Christians in this place stood tall. 
Look over at 1 Thessalonians real quick. So turn over and keep turning until you come to 1 Thessalonians. So we've seen the lamb and the lion, and now briefly his lion-hearted people don't have much time, but let me show you this. From Thessalonica, when Paul and Silas were forced to leave town, they came to Berea. Show us that, Frank. From Berea, and we'll look at that next week, they came down to Athens. And Paul is in Athens. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. From Athens, the believers in Thessalonica are on his heart and mind. He wants to go back and see them probably knows that they're going through difficulty. The persecution is hot in that city. And he's wondering, how are they doing? Are they standing firm? Are they staying strong? And he wants to go, and he wants to go, and he wants to go, but he can't. And so what he does is he sends Timothy. Timothy, you're able to go. You go north to Thessalonica, see how they're doing, and I'm going to go further south to Corinth, and then you come meet me in Corinth. And that's what happened. Timothy went to Thessalonica. He came back down and met Paul in Corinth. And Timothy gave him a report of how the Thessalonians were doing. And just to look at it briefly in chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father hope, the steadfastness. They had hope, and it caused them to be steadfast. Verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. These believers had a strong faith and it showed itself in works. They had a, a great love and it showed itself in laboring for others. They had a hope in Christ and therefore they were steadfast. They were sharing the gospel. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Verse 9, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so Paul is just commending them. Timothy came with a wonderful report. Paul's commending them. In chapter 2, he has to defend his reputation against some challenges that are coming his way. But then look in verse 17 of chapter 2. We, brethren having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit. So they were taken away in person. They had to leave, but not in spirit. My heart is with you. I'm thinking of you. I pray for you. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy, a crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, chapter 3, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, 
to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Paul had told him, following Jesus is not always easy. It's going to be hard. And while he was in Athens, he was concerned about them. I wonder how their faith is doing. And he couldn't get there, so he sent Timothy, verse 5, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. What a lion-hearted people. Courageous, brave, just like their Savior. We're people of the Lamb, the suffering Lamb who died in our place and for our sins. We're people of the Lion, the one who rose from the dead and is exalted to the Father's right hand, who reigns now and will come again to reign forevermore. Let's be as lion-hearted people. Like these Thessalonians in the midst of the hardships that come our way. To be a people of faith and of love and of hope who stand firm. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Testifying to us again of our the glory of our Savior, the glory of Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our Rescuer, our Ruler, the Forgiver of our sins, the Leader of our lives. Lord, as we seek to follow you, May we be a lion-hearted people as these Thessalonians were. In the midst of their tribulations, hardships, difficulties, their faith remained. They kept trusting, kept believing, kept standing tall for Christ. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.